this week, uh, we had a, a drum set at our house uh, for my son TC. So it's been a lively house uh, since since then. Now I've uh, tried three days to just form some type of beat on the drum, but uh, I'm coming to the conclusion that it's just not my gifting. It's just not going to happen. So we're going to walk through this series this morning, or this, this message this morning, called Debunking Christmas. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to look at the few things that you might know, you might have set up in your nativity, that the Bible doesn't necessarily say worked out that way. In fact, some of your notes as you were handed them actually had the, uh, the answer printed right into it. So uh, that's good for me, I guess, in, as, in case I forget something, but uh, not so good for your intrigue, I guess, uh, if you read ahead and had it. But uh, either way, it'll work out this morning. Now, I remember when I was young, we were on the freeway. Uh, in Georgia, heading out to my grandma's house, which was right on the border of Georgia and Alabama. And as we were headed out there, we saw the coolest thing a kid my age at that time could ever see. It was a whole car rig of General Lee's. You know what I'm talking about? The orange car from the Dukes of Hazard, a whole carload of them being, being moved or taken. And now, as cool as that was at the time, I remember as a kid thinking, wait a second, what are all those General Lees? You see, I had watched the show Dukes of Hazard. It was the one night my parents let us stay up late on Friday night to watch Dukes of Hazard. As a family, we would gather and we'd watch it. And, and to me, that was like... That was like the reality of real life and where I wanted to live one day, driving a car on dirt roads and ramping over construction mounds of dirt. That's what I wanted to do. But there would have never a thought in my head that there was more than one General Lee. Never mind the fact that you watched them jump and land and the whole front end of the car bent up. Um, I thought there was just one General Lee. And yet now I'm looking at about eight General Lees. So for a second, even though that's a really cool thing for a little kid, for a second I had to, I had to get over the idea that what I knew of Dukes of Hazard was not really what I thought. In reality, they were using cars. And my dad, I remember him explaining to me, well, one car they would wreck and they would, you know, get another car in there. And, or they used different cars for different things, some jumping, some just shots, and what, whatever. And I remember for a moment thinking, man... I've been gypped here. I've been ripped off by the movie industry here. It was my first understanding that everything is not always what it seems. Well, the same is really true on this Christmas story. You see, this, this year you probably carefully took your nativity and you set it up. And, and as you set it up, you put Joseph and Mary there. And, you know, they were kneeling and, you know, doing this kind of stuff. And the baby was in a manger. And it was a beautiful-looking manger, almost as if you had gone down to Babies Are Us and bought a manger and put it in there. And then you had your shepherds right next to them, right? And there were some animals. They were incredibly obedient right next to them. And then wise men on, on the side that looked like kings from great dynasties that had come and worshipped. And they all just converged at the right time that night. Well, there's nothing wrong with putting nativity out like that, but uh, it's not necessarily how the story goes. And I want us to look at that this morning. Just look at a couple things that may be wrong with what you might know about Christmas. Let's start with the first one, and that's this. Jesus was not born on December 25th. Did you know that? 
wasn't born on December 5th, 25th, excuse me. Um, though we celebrate that as Christmas Day, and we celebrate that as the birth of Christ, it really is nearly impossible that it would have happened on that day or in that time frame. You see, it, just like for us, in Bethlehem, that would have been winter months as well. In fact, it would have been the beginning of the winter months, or the beginning of the severe type of weather. And so, think about a couple things that are going on. Number one, a census had occurred in the time, is what the Bible tells us, and everyone was to travel to their hometown to be counted. Now, for us, every so often, a census happens, they mail you a card, and you're supposed to say how many people are in your household, what are the ages, you mail it back, that kind of thing, right? Well, this is the same type of thing, except for they traveled to the location to be counted in the hometown of their ancestors. Now, no kingdom would have taken this time of year and made all the people travel to be counted. It would have served for a pretty angry time among the people to have to travel in severe weather or travel at times when, unlike our roads, these roads would have been nearly impassable during the winter months. And so to make a census occur at this particular time and for everyone to travel at this particular time really is probably not the time frame. The other thing that we, we learned if we look culturally at the time was we find in Luke chapter 2, we find that there were shepherds in the fields watching over their flocks by night, right? And this probably could not have been the case during the winter months. For the most part, in that region, if you were a shepherd, you watched your flock from about April to November is when you watch your flock in the, in the fields. During the other time, flocks were more contained uh, in stables or fenced-in areas where they stayed really close to one another and had the warmth of one another to help survive during the winter months. Now, these were temperatures at this time, just like in some of our northern states, would have routinely dropped in below freezing at nighttime. And so to think of the, the shepherds all being out there and all gathering together during this time of year is probably not the case and probably not the time. So it would mean that Jesus' birth probably was somewhere between April and October. Now, Bible scholars actually lean more towards October time because it's the end of the harvest when food is fairly plentiful which would have been a pretty good time to call for a census and to have people travel when there would be enough food on hand in these particular towns. Now, we don't know for sure on that time frame, but pretty sure that December 25th would not be the time. Now, the question is then, why? Are we getting gypped on this one here? Why did we celebrate this? Well, you see, when Constantine in the 4th century decided to make Christianity legal, it was now the religion of the empire. Christianity. In just a few years prior, if you were a Christian, you could be put to death. But now Christianity was the legal religion of, of, of the whole empire. When that happened, there was a festival that was being uh, celebrated under winter solstice, already being celebrated, a pagan uh, celebration that was happening right around this time frame. Now, it wasn't always on the same date. It moved a little bit, depending on the time frame of year. But what Christians basically did when Christianity became legal is they took over and they hijacked that holiday, and they made that a Christian holiday, with the focus being on the coming of Christ. And so as that developed over the years and became more organized and more profound, we got Christmas. We got the actual day that was celebrated December 25th 
and it's stuck, and it sticks all the way up to now, and that's why it's not a country holiday. It is a worldwide holiday that Christians took and spread throughout the world from that point on. So there's your first first debunk of Christmas. Let's look at the next one. Uh, that's this, that Jesus was not born in a barn. Well, not a barn per se. You see, what we find in the story and what we often think in your nativity probably is this standalone stable, right? It's made out of kind of wood and it's got, it's got a little bit of twigs across the top and something like that and hay on the ground. We think of it set apart like stables that we know of. Just recently, I told you, we, we went and visited the, the Billy Graham Library down in Charlotte. And they actually kind of have a setup of where, like, some stables would have been on that farm. And they're away from the house, and they look kind of like what we would think of stables. Well, that's what we often think in the Bible story as well. But if we start to look at Jewish culture at the time and how homes were built, especially in areas like Bethlehem that was very, very hilly, up and down, up and down. Now, we live in rolling hills here, but think in living places that's fairly steep, like more out to the western part of our state. And if you go out there, you start to see a little bit different designs of houses, the use of, of basements or three-story houses that are built into the side of hills. So if you can start thinking of that, you start to get an image of what a house looked like in Bethlehem. And so often a house would be typical that they would actually terrace off the hillside, just steps, just like this, and they would build one large room house on one of the terraces. Now, houses weren't, weren't kind of like ours, where, you know, you've got your four bedrooms and your kitchen and your bathrooms and all that kind of stuff. This was probably one big room that was somewhat sectioned off. And so it would be on one of those terraces. Now, on the top, on another terrace, or next to that on the same terrace, might be an additional room that was designed specifically if you were to have visitors come into town, or if you were to let people use it for some special occasion. And they often called that the guest room. And then down from there, maybe down another terrace um, below, like we would think of a basement kind of thing in our house, would be another room, and that was the place that they would house their animals and their food storage, and, and things such as that. And that became their, you know, quote-unquote barn or stable area. So when you get this view, you really see all kind of one house connected and this under area where animals were, were, set, were settled or, or stored for the night, certainly uh, at, at times when they wouldn't want a, you know, a, a certain animal to run off or to get stolen, because one animal for a family might have been a huge, huge deal to have and a huge help for them to survive on. And so they would all be stored right there in the house. Now, in there, there would be some sort of feeding trough for the animals, which is where our manger comes into play. That's really all the manger is, is a sort of feeding trough for these animals. Now, if you've ever been out on a farm and you've seen a feeding trough, you know these are not pretty, pristine type of things. <laughs> kind of ugly and messy. And this was probably not a feeding trough that had been stored up on the side just in case somebody came along to have a baby. This would have been a functional feeding trough and that was used. So when they came into the town and they, they came to this house and then they were turned away, here's our image when we look at it. We look at this and we say, well, they went to this hotel, you know, Motel 6, you know, we'll keep the light on type of thing. And they, they went in and they knocked on the door and 
they flashed the neon sign that said no vacancy. You know, nothing here for you. Uh, you know, come on, do you need to find something? You got a janitor closet? What do you got for us? You know, nothing for them. But that's working our own culture into that. You see, if we take Bethlehem times and we look at this, what really probably happened was they came in to the house of their relatives because that's where they would have gone in Bethlehem to their descendants, to, their, to relatives, distant cousins or aunts and uncles such as that. And so when they came in and they knocked on the door, there was no space for them. But there was this guest room, this side room that they would have called uh, their, their guest room and there was no room in there as well. Now, not wanting to turn this couple away, as we often think, you know, they were just, just heartless. They turned them away. They wanted to find some space for them. And so they said, look, we don't have any room in our guest room, but there's some room down with the animals. There's some room in our, our stable, our storage area down below, and you can use that as well. Now, I don't think they said to, to Mary, hey, I know you're about to have a baby. Why don't you go on down? There's a great feeding trough that you could put your baby in. I think they were looking, and there was probably even compassion to say, we've got to find something. And they put, they put here Mary and Joseph down into this, this area with their animals in the below basement-style place here. This, this guest room is, in Greek, it's kataluma is the word. And it's used one other time in the Bible. It's also in the book of Luke. And it's a time when on the night just before Jesus would go to the cross, he gathered his disciples in, into this room called the, the upper room. Yeah, <laughs> you jumped ahead, Dave. Very good. This cataluma, or the upper room. That's the other time it's used in Scripture. And so when we look at this word and we see it used this other time, clearly in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, it's not talking about a hotel as we know a hotel. It's speaking about an extra room, a guest room, a place where they could gather to have their meal, the disciples and Jesus, that night. And so the same thing here. This is a guest room, an extra room. Now, the interesting thing is this is family here. And so for Mary to come in pregnant and seemingly towards the end of her pregnancy and to not have use of the guest room, we would say, wow, that is heartless that they wouldn't give her the guest room. Well, look, it wasn't so much about the condition you were in, in your seniority. It was usually about your age. And it just worked down from there. And usually age and being a male gave you priority of where you were going to be placed in the house. So probably when they came in, there was already some relatives there that had seniority in age, and they were being housed in the guest room. And so Mary and Joseph went down with the animals into the basement area where all was stored. And then while they were there, lo and behold, the time comes for Mary to deliver and give birth. And she does. And what's available to them while they're down there? Uh, this manger. And that's where they end up putting Jesus. And that's where we get this, this story from, from here as well. So how do we get to this point where we have commonly thought that it's an inn or a hotel style like we know a hotel? Well, again, shift forward to the fourth century when Christianity became the legal religion and the dominant religion of the, of the whole known area. There was the first really translation of the Bible, translated from Greek which was originally written in, uh, into Latin. It's called the Vulgate. And when it was translated in 4, 
uh, in four, the fourth century there, it was translated with a word in Latin that means much more similar to what we say today in inn or hotel or motel, multi-room type of place. And so from the fourth century, really, that long ago, this word was taken, and from then on, we've started to think more in line of inn, hotel, a multi-room type of place. But the original word in Greek, kataluma, would not have had that same meaning. So let's look on uh, our third one here, the bunking Christmas. Our third one is the wise men didn't wear crowns. Wise men didn't wear crowns. Now, what we think often when we, when we see this here is we think wise men, we think of kings of some empire, some kingdom, some castle, something like this, right? And they traveled this great distance to be with Jesus, to be there that night. Well, in reality, uh, most scholars have agreed that these wise men, these magi, were most likely astrologers. And that was the reason why God used the star and why they were able to see it. Now, think for a second. If there is a bright enough star that anyone could see the star and think, hey, let's follow that star, uh, you probably would have had a much bigger crowd that had come to see Jesus who said, something is going on here with this star in the sky. But these, these magi, these astrologers, that was their job. It's what they did all the time, is they looked at the sky, they charted the skies, and they marked stuff. And when this star appeared, and it was different than what they had seen before in their maps and charts, and, and that it seemingly was actually moving or guiding them or, or egging them to come on, as a, an astrologer, they saw something other people didn't see. And so they decided, maybe on just pure faith, to say, I'm going to follow that star. And they headed that direction. Now, the question has always been, how far did they come? From where did they start? You know, from the east. You know, that could be from, you know, here to the other side of Greensboro would be from the east, right? But probably there was some distance that they traveled here. We get the, uh, some scholars that say all, all the way from maybe as far as like India, they traveled that distance. Now, I would love to know exactly where it is. We probably will never be able to pinpoint it exact. But seemingly, they were from a completely different culture. They're traveling over many, many miles to come to see Jesus. Now, we don't know how fast they traveled, how long it took them. But it certainly was not Christmas night that they were able to make it. By the time they come, the Bible actually tells us there in Matthew 2.11 that they came into the house and saw the child. Now, this is the interesting thing is when in the scripture we find when Jesus is first born, he is called an infant, and that's a word that's used. But here, he's called a child, a completely different word in the Greek that's used to describe a young child. And so most likely, scholars pretty much agree that as they came, it could have been anywhere from a few months after birth to, to two years up to that point. And now remember, when they visited Herod, and Herod then went out to try to kill babies, what was the breakdown? About two years and younger. So that was the time frame they were trying to match up in that period to make sure that they found the Christ child and tried to kill this child that, that others were saying was going to be the savior of the world. So somewhere in that time frame, they came and they saw this child. Magi, astrologers, 
following from a distance. Now, how many of them came? We have no idea. We commonly think that it was three because there was three gifts that were given. So it could only be three, right? If three were given. Um, but people buy more than one gift, right? Over the year. There's lots of Xbox Ones that were sold. And so who knows how many wise men came giving the same gift or giving no gift or maybe collectively as a group. That's what they gave. We don't really know the number that came, but we know they came by faith. And most likely, this was a group of people that came that didn't know anything about the Jewish faith. And yet they followed the star came to see the child, and I like to think that they were the first missionaries, that they were impacted such that when they returned to their homes, that they went and shared the faith of what they saw. So the fourth one, and this one's a little bit different. In fact, you may go, what? Um, But such that it is. Fourth, Christmas is not about family. It's really not. If you, re, if you look at your TV and, and you look at your Hallmark channels and your Hallmark commercials and, and you look at things like that, then, then clearly it's about family. But when we read the biblical account, that's really not what Christmas is about at all. In fact, I think sometimes as Christians, as we read this, we would say, well, I know, Tom, Christmas is about Christ, it's about the child, it's about God's gift to the world, I know all that. But I'm not sure we always acted out that way. At the end of the Christmas season, I think we acted out like it was more about families and getting together than about the Christ child. This is just a reminder to us that Christmas is not about family. In fact, I say at the bottom, or gifts, or trees, or etc. Put whatever you want in there. So really, what is Christmas about? Now, for many of you, I know you've been around church years and years and years, and this is the point when you hear a message like this that you kind of click off. But hang on just a second, because I think this is, this is significant for us to hear or rehear. The Bible tells us, in really the most famous verse that we know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. You see, the reason for Christmas and that Christ came, is really one key reason. And that is because we are sinful people who need to be reconnected with a God that loves us. That was the reason Jesus came into the world. In fact, Jesus' number one priority is not to be your friend, even though we sing about that, you know, I am a friend of God and things like that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not, wasn't his chief, that wasn't his chief reason that he came. He came to save us. He came to save us from What? came to save us from our sin and the consequences of our sin. And so when the little baby came into the world at Christmas time, when we celebrate it, when we look at our nativities, and when we read the story from Luke, and can I tell you a second of sidetrack? I'm going to tell you, I, I love the time with my family and everything. I got, a, I got such a joy out of one small text message I got from somebody at the church, somebody who's kind of back in the faith and, and, you know, and, and leading his family, and this was really cool, sent me a text and said, hey, what was that passage we should read? Uh, with our family on Christmas morning, and, you know, and I sent it back to him, and he said, okay, thanks. You know, I thought that was the coolest thing, because I thought, you know, there's, there's a young man who's saying, Christmas morning, we're going to open gifts and stuff, but we are going to read this story. I'm going to lead my family in this way. That was really, really cool this Christmas to get that. The reason for this child, when we celebrate it on Christmas, is because he came to save us. In fact, when we look at that, the reason for him is points and leads directly to Easter Sunday, 
when we look at this Christmas child. It's about salvation. <laughs> what have we got on screen? I know I get some chuckling going on behind me that you're not looking at the same thing I'm looking at. It's about this child, this Savior. Now, we live in a time, in a, in a world of tolerance, when the whole idea of sin and talking about sin and what is sin is something we have a hard time dealing with. In fact, when we say something is sin, chances are we have just kicked up a bunch of dust of controversy and argument when we state that. But this child came to deal with our sin. In fact, the Bible tells us, it's familiar passages for many of you, but listen to what it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. This is what it says. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Now, you might say, well, duh, Tom, uh, we know we've sinned. We're human, right? We're not perfect. We understand that. But the problem is, if you just flip a little bit further in Romans chapter 6, in, down in verse 23, it says the wages that sin pays are death. So when we look at this child, we have to remember, this child came to save us. Because we're sinners. We've blown it. We've sinned against God. We've disobeyed his ways. We've sinned against our spouse. We've sinned against our kids. You know, I did both of those this week, even. This, this baby came to save us. Because outside of that baby coming, the Bible just tells me that the wages of sin, that pays death. That's what I get. Now, my son, James, uh, I put on Facebook, he just started a little job. He worked two days for Ray and Faith at Limstone Christian Books. Now, it was the coolest thing. I went in, and I had to kind of turn away. I got a little choked up and everything, watching my son work his first job and, and such. But, but Ray said, hey, uh, I could pay him at the end of the day if you want. And I said, no, 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 no. I, w- I want you to just, I want him to learn the whole payroll thing, so you just hold it to your next payday and that kind of thing, right? So James and I had this conversation at the end, and he very sheepishly, he didn't want to ask. He didn't want to you know, feel like he was being demanding or anything, but he said, um, so how much am I getting paid? <laughs> and I kind of told him how it all worked and, and that type of thing and how much he had to give me and that type of stuff as well. <laughs> So we worked through that. Really, what was I doing with my son there? I was teaching him, when you do this, you get this. When you work at this job, you get this. And you will get it on this such and such date. You see, for us, the wage of sin works the same way. When our sin and the way we've lived and sinned against God, our spouse, our kids, other people, ourselves, there is a wage that comes with it. The Bible says it's death. And we don't get it right then. We don't get it at that moment. But there's a day coming, there's a payday that's coming where we receive that. And sometimes we can just kind of function in life and keep rolling through life, not feeling like we're facing any of the wages or penalties, and we almost forget that that's coming. Or we almost forget that we ever need to even deal with sin and think about sin at all. But God says in his word, the wages of sin, the payment, it pays death. But the good news is in the same verse, but God's gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's basically saying there, that gift of Christ, the baby child, is your salvation. That whosoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life. This is the time of year, right? It's, 
it's the time where we start thinking about New Year's resolutions, right? You start thinking about what am I going to do different? I mean, Shree and I, we already even have this list. I mean, we've got this 30-day diet thing we want to crank through. Uh, we're going to do a 90-day read through the Bible, the entire Bible, in 90 days, you know, which means we've got to turn off the Netflix for, for 90 days and, and really crank through God's Word. Uh, K-Love does this thing every year, and it's really neat. Uh, in fact, some of you might want to jump on it if, if you don't normally do this. But for 30 days, it encourages you to only listen to Christian music, right? Now, some of you, I know you're not sold on the idea of Christian, secular, what's it all matter. That's fine. We're not, I'm not going to solve that argument. But it's, a, it's just a challenge to say, listen to only Christian music for the month of January, and then just just chronicle, is there any difference in your life? What does it look like at the end of 30 days? So that's a great challenge. We love to do that at this time of year. You know what? When I read the Christmas story, when I'm studying this week to talk about this type of thing, I think this. My resolution as I look at this has to do with the sin in my life. When I look at resolution and I say, you know, here's some things I've got to change. When I look and I say, why do I snap at my kid here or there? Well, there's something God needs to deal with me. There's something I need to surrender before him. You know, for many of you, you might be sitting there and there's some addiction that just sticks in your life day after day after day. Listen, if that's the case, don't, don't worry about joining the gym for the next 30 days or whatever. Deal with that sin. That's where God wants you to find your resolution. That's where he wants you to find it. Now, you may be one that you've said yes to Jesus Christ, and so you're going to heaven. Jesus is covering your sin, but you're still dealing day by day with the consequences of decisions that you make or sin that you fall into. And you know what God says? I don't want that for you either. I want you to find salvation every day of your life and then find it in the eternity when you pass on. That's what this whole story is all about. You've got a few days here before the new year to really deal with that and to think towards that. Now, it's not a magic day, January 1st. You could do it right now today. But to think about the meaning of Christmas, that a Savior was sent to you to deal with your sin, to give you right relationship with God. And right relationship with God, that's a pretty phenomenal place to be. And so my encouragement to you as you're debunking Christmas is maybe you got to search within you and ask, what have I bought into? What have I bought into that really is junking up my life? Get rid of that. Start on the path to right relationship with him. If it's sin in your life, deal with the sin. Let God deal with it right away. If it's something else that he's called you to and you keep saying no to the calling, then today's a good time to run right to the calling as fast as you can. You're praying, God, I hope you haven't left me on this because I know you've been calling me to it. And do it right away. If it's as simple as the text I got the night before Christmas where you're saying, I need to just get my family into the word and lead my family that direction, then do it right away. Jump into it and do it. And when we walk that way, then we've debunked all this stuff about Christmas that our culture has bought into. And we've gotten right in line with what the Word of God tells us about why the Christ child came. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this morning, and, and thank you that, Lord, we've had a great time with Christmas. Lord, it's been phenomenal. But we recognize that there's just much more. And Lord, I would expect that there's some here, right here now, Lord, that 
as they finish off this year, they look back and they think, well, some good things happened, but man, there are some things occurring in my life. There's things that I'm allowing to happen that just continue, continue on, that I just, I just haven't shook or haven't dealt with. Father, if there be any sin in somebody's life, that it's time for them to look at it square in the face and to admit, look, I, I'm a sinner in this area, and to deal with it to let your word wash over them and speak to them and transform them. Lord, I pray we would do it, even now that they would begin, whatever it may be. Lord, there might be some that is just as simple as saying, I need to open up that Bible and read it and immerse myself in it. I've been so distant from that book. Help them to do it, Lord. And then, Lord, in all of these, would we find incredible testimony to your name, life transformation, and would we know as we, as we jump into those things and look back on this Christmas time saying, that's the reason we celebrate it. Because this is the life transformation it brings. I give it to you, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.